Good morning. So good to see you this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're in the middle of a series. We're talking about what it means to have a godly home. In week one, we talked about the foundation, the root of it all, which is to be a mirror. That's why God created us, and our families are to be mirrors of the God who created us. Last week, we talked about what it means to be a superman in your home, and today we're looking at what it means to be a wonder woman. So if you would, turn to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31 contains the longest passage on motherhood in Scripture. So I think it would do us well to look at it. I'm not going to put it on the screen, so if you have your Bibles, Proverbs chapter 31, starting at verse 10. An excellent wife who can find her, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and linen and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. And she rises while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her attendants. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She surrounds her waist with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her profit is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor, and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She watches over the activities of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly. But you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Liz Curtis Higgs once stated that the ideal woman was described 2,500 years ago in Proverbs 31, and she is still intimidating sisters ever since. O.S. Hawkins said of this woman, and I quote, This wonder woman gets up before dawn and stays busy until the early hours of the next morning. We have developed a mental image of her. She looks uh, like a movie star, the domestic abilities of a master chef, the stamina of a world-class athlete, the intellect of a professor with a Ph.D., the tenacity of a political operative, the wisdom of a godly missionary, the sensitivity of Mother Teresa, the business sense of a Fortune 500 executive, the grace of an etiquette expert, and the spirituality of Virgin Mary. Wow. Then he concludes, no wonder so many, uh, no wonder so many mothers leave church feeling down on Mother's Day. Chances are you've heard a sermon or two dedicated to mothers, and chances are you've heard Proverbs 31 used in that sermon, and chances are perhaps you've left church that morning after hearing such a sermon feeling like you didn't measure up. Mother's Day can be difficult 
for the very people we're trying to honor. And it's not just Mother's Day. Anytime we talk about motherhood from the pulpit, we tend to exalt it to a level that makes many mothers uncomfortable, leaves them feeling guilty that they don't measure up. We love our mothers. We cherish the role of mother. We, we should hold motherhood in high esteem. But I'm sure you've noticed that all mothers are also humans. Coincidence? I don't think so. And because all mothers are also human beings, I think we need to be careful not to project unrealistic expectations upon them so that they feel guilty and ashamed all the time. Mothers mess up. Fathers mess up. Kids mess up. No member of a family is exempt from sin and guilt and shame. It's woven into the very fabric of our families. Adam and Eve and their fall guaranteed that we would all come from a broken home. So the key feature in motherhood, the key feature in fatherhood, the key feature in childhood is not perfection. No, the key feature in all of these is grace. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1. While the ideal may be Proverbs 31, the real may be more like Matthew chapter 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, and Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David the king. Somewhere between Carol Brady and Roseanne Connor probably lies most mothers, right? If you're looking at it on a spectrum or a scope, and one end you have June Cleaver, and on the other end, you have Norman Bates's mother. Most of our mothers are probably somewhere in between, right? Somewhere in between is where we fall. We, we exalt the Proverbs 31 mother. We revere her. That's the ideal. But most mothers struggle with living up to the ideal and live more in the real. Why Matthew chapter 1? Why do we look at a list of names as, as part of our sermon on mothers? Well, because while it is just a list of names to most of us, genealogies were very important to Jews. And within this genealogy, you find four women. What do we know about these women? Well, the first one is Tamar. You can read up on her story by going to Genesis chapter 38. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was the son of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. What's really pertinent to Tamar's story was that she was a Gentile who married Judah's son, whose name was Ur. Ur died, so his brother Onan married uh, Tamar. Onan died, which meant that Tamar was without a husband and without a child. And in this day and time, both were considered to be curses. And rather than allowing God to work in her life, Tamar took matters into her own hands and dressed like a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law Judah to sleep with her. So, there's a hint of incest here, and there's lying, there's deceit, there's greed, all those things. Now, this, this incestuous relationship uh, brought forth... Uh, Perez and Zerah, twin boys. So you have this woman, Tamar, 
who was nothing more than a, a biblical footnote in, in history and an unsavory one at that. Her story is filled with, with lots and lots of immorality. And yet here she is in the lineage of Jesus. You also have Rahab. Rahab is a woman whose name is virtually always followed with a title. Have you notice that in Scripture? And the title is always the prostitute. So that probably tells you all you need to know about Rahab. She's also uh, a Canaanite, which were the hated enemy of Israel. And she's known for what? For being a liar, right? She lied. Deception. So you have this prostitute who's a liar, and yet she's included in Jesus' lineage as well. Then you have Ruth. There's no scandal attached to Ruth's name. But it's still intriguing that her name would be included in the genealogy of Jesus. Jews were very interested in genealogies because they would either expose impurity or show the purity of a Jewish, a Jewish person. And so they were very interested in these lineages. To include a woman was highly unusual in and of itself, but then to include a Moabite woman, well, that was just unheard of. The Jews hated the Moabites and wanted nothing to do with them. Then you have Bathsheba, who is not mentioned directly by name, but we know her story, right? We know that she had an adulterous affair with David. We also know that that affair led to murder and lying and a royal cover-up. Her relationship with David is drenched in sin, but don't miss the point. She is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So let's take inventory of what we have here. Listed among the names in Jesus' genealogy are Tamar, a woman associated with incest, pseudo-prostitution, sexual immorality, and a Gentile. You have Rahab, a woman known for prostitution and lying, as well as being a Canaanite. You have Bathsheba, a woman known for adultery and scandal. You have Ruth, a hated Moabite, a nation that was born out of incest. Three are Gentiles. Three are involved in some sort of sexual immorality. Two are involved in prostitution. One is an adulteress. All are found in the line of the Messiah. Why? Why include these four women in the genealogy of Jesus? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one... I think God included these black sheep because he wanted the audience that Matthew was writing to to understand that this goes beyond self-righteousness. Remember who Matthew was writing to as a Jewish audience that included Pharisees and scribes who wrote the book on self-righteousness. And so the Holy Spirit's message here is pretty clear. Even though Jesus is the Messiah, he came from a family that included some black sheep. His family lineage is filled with murderers and thieves and harlots and liars and adulterers. That would not have set well with the Jewish elite. Secondly, this lineage is a record of God's grace. This is not a gallery of sinless saints. Solomon was a polygamist. Manasseh was an evil king. Abraham lied. We could go on and on with not just the women in this lineage, but the men as well. The Jews didn't always include every name in a lineage, but to include the names of women women that were not so illustrious, just goes to show the point that is trying to be made here. Jesus is the Messiah, born into this world to save the very kind of people found in his family tree. Jesus came from sinners, and Jesus came for sinners. Not only that, Jesus came to bring hope. Yes, I realize that Jesus came 
to seek and save the lost. Yes, Jesus came to be an atonement for our sins, but he came to bring hope. And right here, in the very beginning of the New Testament, this hope is seen in a passage that we, we typically pass over because we think it's just a list of names. However, what we see here is Jesus' family tree is decorated with sinners. People like you and me, we are the black sheep, but because of Jesus, we can experience the same type of grace as Rahab. Because of Jesus, we can have the same type of hope as Abraham and David and and Solomon and Ruth. Jesus knows all about embarrassing relatives. He knows all about dysfunctional families. And because of Jesus, we can know all about forgiveness and we can know all about being in the family of God. Jesus had roots. And those roots include some folks, some women even, who were, who were not wonder women. However, they were a vital part of God's plan. So the next time that you as a mother think that you're not mom enough, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Remember the names of these women that God still used, even though I'm sure they were probably a lot worse off than you are. I lost my mother in 2014. I've mentioned before, we didn't have a great relationship, pretty strained relationship, but I can look back on it now and I can find parts of it that, that were good, that I can look back with fondness. She was a school teacher and she taught me a lot of things. I'd like to share with you some of the things that she taught me. She taught me to appreciate a job well done. She would often say, if you're going to hurt yourself, do it outside, I just cleaned the house. She taught me logic. She would say, if you fall out of that swing and break your neck, you're not going to the store with me. She taught me about religion. You better pray that stain comes out of the carpet. She taught me about irony. Keep crying, and I'll give you something to cry about. My mother taught me about genetics. She would often say, you're just like your father. She taught me about the circle of life. I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. My mother taught me about stamina. You're going to sit there until you eat all of that broccoli. She taught me about receiving. You're going to get it when you get home. She taught me about my roots. Shut that door. What, were you born in a barn? And my mother taught me about justice. One day, you'll have kids, and I hope they turn out just like you. My mother spent 25 years as a school teacher, and that teaching didn't stop when she left her classroom. There were a lot of lessons that I was taught over the years. She assumed the leadership role in our household because my dad was working a lot and couldn't be at home. But here's something else that I learned from my mother that I think is is paramount to our discussion this morning. And I hope you receive it in the way that I'm trying to relay it. My mother taught me that being a mother is not the most important job in the world. Let me say that again. My mother taught me that being a mother is not the most important job in the world. You ever heard someone say that? I have. You know, motherhood, that's the most important job in the world. And I wonder how much more guilt a mother may feel when she seems like she's in her own mind not measuring up How that must make her feel to think, well, it's the most important job in the world and I'm failing at it every day. 
I shudder to think how those who do not have children must think when someone says that being a mother is the most important job in the world. What message does that send to single women, to those who would love to be married and have a family but cannot because they haven't found Mr. Right? What message does that send to those who would love more than anything to have children but they're unable to conceive? I have noticed that most of the time, those who say that motherhood is the most important job in the world are not mothers. You know who mostly says that? It's fathers. And I totally appreciate uh, uh, fathers and husbands recognizing the wonderful job that their wife does and how they how they are active in the role of mother. I, I totally appreciate men who laud their wives for that. But I think sometimes we can unknowingly incriminate ourselves too. We exalt motherhood to this high level and as fathers we're taking a back seat maybe. I've heard fathers say that. Well, you know, she does all that stuff. I just kind of, I kind of let her take control of that. Be careful. Paul stated, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do you know who he was talking to there? Not the mothers. He was talking to the fathers. You know, we've got to be careful not to take a back seat in this whole parenting thing as dads and that. It's important for us to realize that as fathers, we have a very important job as well. Mothers, you have a very important job. Fathers, you have a very important job. Children, as we're going to talk about next week, you have a very important job. We all have an important job. One's not more important than the other. One may be different than the other, but we, we all have important jobs. And I have never, ever, ever in my life as a minister had a, a, a mother or a wife or both come into my office and sit on my couch and we do some counseling. I've never, ever had one say, you know, I just wish my, my husband wouldn't be so much of a leader. I just, I, I really wish he wouldn't lead so well. Most of the time, it's the opposite. I wish my husband would step up. I wish he'd help me a little bit. I'm carrying this burden of responsibility on myself and I wish he would step up. We all have an important job. Mothers, fathers, children, Single Christians have a very important job. Married couples who don't have children have a very important job. Men who have lost their wives have a very important job. Women who have lost their husbands have a very important job. We all have an important job to do. We all should be engaged in the most important job there is, which is to glorify God. So let's do like Paul said and do the good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do. And let's do it to the glory of God. Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 3. And at 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, this is what we read. Then two women, who were harlots, came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. 
But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, for the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, no, for the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son who is living and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. The king said, give me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. The king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman, whose child was the living one, spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, O oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And when all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. There are some principles I think we can pull out of this. I don't want to unpack all of this this morning, but I think there's some principles that we can pull out of here that help us in motherhood in this day and age. And the first one is this. Notice that first line I read. Then the two women were harlots. These were not perfect women. Not by any stretch. Perfection's not the standard. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you're not condemned for having a messy house. It means that you're not condemned because you don't want to have more kids. It means you're not condemned because you have a desire to get away from time to time. It means you're not condemned because your body is not what it was before you had kids. It means you're not condemned because you cannot afford to buy really nice things for your kids. You're not condemned for not living up to the standard of your mother-in-law. You're not condemned because your kids scream at the top of their lungs at church. You're not condemned even though you feel guilty much of the time. Nobody's perfect. No mother is perfect. Nobody had the perfect mother. Hopefully I've stressed that enough. I want you to notice something else from this story. Notice that the woman brought her child to the king. I doubt the other woman, the one who was guilty, wanted to do this. I doubt that's the course of action she wanted to take. But she had to. But the real mother brought her child to the king. There's a principle in there for all of us. You remember when Hannah in the Old Testament was unable to have children and she struck a deal with God? God, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. That is the essence of parenting. Whether mother or father, that is the essence. That is what it means to be a parent is that we give our child back to its rightful owner, which is God. We return our child to the king. Hannah's deal should be our deal. We give our children back to God. We return them to the rightful owner. We should bring them to the king. Notice also that the king had time for these mothers. Even though they weren't perfect, he made time for them. The king always has time for you, mothers. Always. He always has time. It feels like you don't. It feels like you're stressed to the max, like you don't have time to get everything done. And today, sometimes it feels like you can't keep your head above water. But remember, the king has time for you. Make time for the king. Bring your child to the king. When life is moving at warp speed, when the stress and the anxiety is more than you can handle, God is there. The king is always there. He always has time for you. And finally, I want you to notice the sacrifice of this mother. 
We know that mothers are all about sacrifice. They sacrifice their time and their sleep and their money, their energy. They will go without in order for their child to have everything that they need and sometimes the things that they want. The mother in our story was willing to give up the child she loved so that it could live. Imagine sacrificing your own motherhood for the sake of your child. Thankfully, the wise Solomon knew exactly what was going on, and he had a solution to the problem that ended up exposing the truth. But it makes you wonder how differently this mother acted from that point forward. My guess is she held her baby a little tighter. My guess is she distanced herself from that, that, that woman who did such an egregious thing. My guess is she made sure that her child was never in danger again. But that's what motherhood is about, right? It's about sacrifice. It's about protection. And above all else, it's about taking your child to the king. That is the most important job of a mother. Ideally, the father takes the lead on this. But the most important job of a mother is to protect her child from the foe. To fight off the evil forces in this, in this spiritual battle that seek to get at her child. She may embody some or most or all the characteristics of a Proverbs 31 woman, but above all else, this wonder woman is dubbed as such because she returns her child to the king. She gives her child back to its rightful owner. Four preachers were sitting around discussing the merits of different Bible translations. One of them says, I prefer the King James Version because of its beautiful language. Another one says, I prefer prefer the New American Standard Version because of how literal it is. Another preacher said, well, I kind of like the paratranslations because they're easier to read. But the fourth preacher didn't say anything. He just sat there. And finally, one of the other preachers asked him, well, you hadn't said anything. What, What is your favorite translation of the Bible? And he said, my favorite is my mother's translation." And they said, really? I didn't realize your mother had translated the Bible. He goes, oh yeah. She translated it every day in the way that she lived. And it is by far the most beautiful translation I've ever read. Mothers, please understand that you are likely the first Bible your children will ever read. You are a living translation of God's Word that's not to make you feel guilty. That's not to, you know, to make it to where you leave here today feeling like you don't measure up. Just understand the awesome responsibility and reward that you have, that you are likely the first Bible your children will ever read. You're not perfect, but you're a child of the King. So let's show our children what it means to live for the King. Let's be an example, a living translation the most beautiful translation that they have ever seen. And let's do what we are called to do as parents, mothers and fathers, and give our children back to the rightful owner. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, for this opportunity to be here. Thank you for our mothers. Thank you for the wonderful job that they are striving to do in raising their children and giving them back to you. And God, thank you for all the workers in this congregation, the single mothers, the the single Christian, the the married couples who, who maybe don't have children. For the older, the younger, all walks of life that are represented here, may we all understand that we all have an important job to do. 
and that is to glorify you in everything that we do. May we seek to meet that need every single day by showing others who you are, by having you live through us. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Don's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you, if you need prayer, if you need, uh, you know, if you'd like to study the Bible with someone, let us know. If you'd like to take that next step in faith, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, whatever your need is here this morning, let us help you. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.